Shall we pray? Holy Spirit, I want to thank you for Life Church. I want to thank you that you're at work here. I would like to ask you, in fact, I do ask you, please cleanse us afresh with the beautiful blood of Jesus. Please wash away the, the defilements and all the things that get in the way that keep us from connecting with you, the things that interfere with our relationship with you. Cleanse us afresh, Lord, with that beautiful blood that was shed on our behalf and that blood that speaks. And because of that blood, we have bold confidence to enter the holy place. And please kindly bring your influence to bear on, on me and upon each of us that we might hear what you want us to hear this morning, that we might receive the bread of life. If you agree with that prayer, would you say amen? We're in the fifth uh, installment of the series called The Way of Jesus. We're looking at how Jesus addresses his followers, we call them disciples, and invites us to journey, to journey with him. We have a particular text I'm going to base this message on, but I'll read it to you in, in a moment or two. But first, I want to just simply ask this question. It's an important question. What's the hallmark of being a follower of Jesus? Another way to say that, maybe, maybe a clearer way, is what's the distinguishing feature of being a follower of Jesus? What, what sets us apart? What identifies us as being a follower of Jesus? Is it, is it our doctrine? Is it what we believe? It's not un, unimportant. What we believe is certainly not unimportant. But is that the particular thing that identifies us? Is it affiliation with a congregation like, like Life Church or affiliation with a denomination? Maybe interdenominational, Assembly of God, Lutheran, Catholic. What did Jesus say identifies us? What's the distinguishing feature that identifies us as his followers? John 13, 35. By this will all people know that you're my follower, that you're my disciple, if you have agape for one another, love for one another. Not just any kind of love, a special kind of love. We'll talk more about what that looks like in a little bit. But that's what he said. He didn't say it was our doctrine. He didn't say it was an affiliation. It's not even being baptized. As important as that is, that's actually a command to be baptized. It's not a suggestion. But that's not it. He said, the thing that identifies you as my follower is that your life is infused with my love and you show that love to other followers of Jesus. That's what he said. And this, this begs at least three questions. These three questions come to my mind. If this is Jesus' belief that that's what sets us apart, shouldn't it demand that we prioritize that? Shouldn't that be a priority for us? If he said that's the thing that sets us apart, shouldn't that be a priority? Second question, what does that love look like? What's it look like? If we're gonna experience that love, identify that love, walk in that love, it'd help to know, I think it would. What's it, what's it look like? And a, and a third question is, how can we actually pull that off? How can we, how can we love people the way Jesus said love, love looks? 
There were other words that Jesus could have chosen in his culture. They used about four words to describe love. There was a love that identified erotic love, eros, from which we get the word erotic. There was storge, an important love that pertained to a committed relationship. There was phileo, a brotherly kind of love. And there is agape, agape, A-G-A-P-E, agape love, which is actually, it's a divine kind of love. It's a supernatural kind of love. What does agapeing one another look like? It, it looks like the one whose very essence is described as agape. Did you know that God is described as actually being love? Not just being loving, but being agape? 1 John 4, 8 and also verse 16 say God is, he is agape. And here's something I think that's important to point out. God has lots of attributes that aren't used to describe his essence. When we talk about God's essence, we're talking about the core of who he is and that he actually can't act in a way that's inconsistent with his essence. I said he can't. And actually, 2 Timothy chapter 2 says that. He can't deny himself. He, he just can't. He can't act in a way that's inconsistent with his essence. But there's lots of attributes. There's things that are true about God that Christians everywhere acknowledge. Like, for example, God's eternal which means he doesn't have a beginning. No one created God. He doesn't have an ending. Does that compute for us? Not really. But it really doesn't matter. Ultimately, God's described himself that way. God is eternal. The Bible also says he's all-knowing. There's nothing hidden from his sight. All things are open and laid bare before him with whom we must one day give an account. He's all-knowing. The Bible tells us he's present everywhere. There's no place you can go to get away from him. Psalm 139 makes that clear. He's everywhere. You go to the top of a mountain, he's there. You descend to the depths of the ocean, he's there. There's no cave you can climb into and hide in where you could escape his presence. He's everywhere present. He's all-knowing. He's all-powerful. All things are possible with God. Bible says he's just, he's, he's kind, he's patient. Those are attributes. But one word is used to describe the core of his being, and that's agape. Agape. So what's noteworthy about God's agape essence? And some of the first things that come to my mind are things I've been sharing with you for months. And I'll share them again. Because we need to hear them again and again and again. Let's remember that the Bible says God's agape is unconditional. Romans 5, he loves us when we were yet dead in our trespasses and sins. He didn't wait for us to change. He loves you. Do you know God loves you as you are, actually? He actually loves you. He doesn't like all that we, we do to hurt ourselves and hurt others, but he loves us. And if you're a parent, you might, you might understand this. Your kids can be naughty. You still love them. You still care deeply. God loves us. In fact, I, I don't think it's unbiblical to say he's crazy about us. I hope the day comes when I'll be able to say, 
what I heard one elderly Irishman say on his 86th birthday. He was grinning from ear to ear, and his nephew said, Oh, Uncle Seamus, why are you so, so happy today? He says, because my father loves me. He's fond of me. Wouldn't it be great if you believed that, if I believed that about ourselves? God doesn't just technically love us. You know, we can kind of check that off as a doctrine we subscribe to. Do you know God loves us? Yeah, sure. Do you know he's fond of you? He loves you as you are. He loves you in such a way that there are no deal breakers. Romans chapter 8, nothing can separate you from his love. According to John 17, he loves you with the very same intensity of love with which he loved Jesus. Yeah. And then the Bible describes or helps us see anyway that the love of God is non-intrusive. Remember, Jesus stood at a door and he knocked, right? He waited for people to open the door. He didn't come barging in. God's love is non-intrusive. And then according to Paul's description of love, under the influence of the Spirit, he described it. In 1 Corinthians 13, it says, love doesn't insist on its own way. God's love isn't coercive. He's not going to force you to do stuff you don't really want to do. That's just not who he is. He's not controlling. He's not a micromanager, contrary to what some people have said. But there's some other aspects of God's love that may not immediately come to mind when we think about God's love. Some not-so-usual things that may seem even inconsistent with with love. One of them is that God rebukes people he loves. You see, Jesus, we can look at the life of Jesus and see this because Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen who? You've seen the Father. And the writer to the Hebrews said of Jesus, he's the exact imprint of the Father's being. We like to say, I like to say, there's no unchrist-like feature to God. Jesus was the embodiment of the Father's will and nature. He was God incarnate. And he was here physically about 2,000 years ago. And he had just asked his beautiful followers of Jesus, who do people say that I am? Who do people say that I am? Well, some of the followers said, some say you're Elijah, John the Baptist, one of the prophets of old. Said, yeah, but who do you guys say that I am? Peter gave a reflexive answer. I don't think it was reflective. I think it was reflexive. I think it just came tumbling out of him. He said, well, that's easy. You're the Christ. I'm sure he did that. You're the Christ. I know. I was there. I'm telling you. I'm really old. I, I look pretty good for my age. Uh, but you're the Christ. You're the Christ. Of course, you're the Christ. You're the Son of the living God. And what does Jesus say to him? Simon Peter, you're blessed. You're the, you're the Son of John, Simon Peter. Simon, Son of John, flesh and blood. People didn't reveal this to you. My Father revealed this to you. Wow! And then Jesus begins right away to tell his followers, you know, there's trouble ahead, and I'm going to face a lot of trouble. Things aren't going to go well for me. And Peter rebukes him. He takes him aside. He rebukes him. He, he tries to educate Jesus. Jesus has it wrong. He's the Messiah. You know, you, you can't be expecting this kind of trouble. What does Jesus say to him? Get behind me, Satan, because you're thinking like man. What? Well, 
Jesus. I can imagine Peter thinking, Jesus, that doesn't feel very loving. Jesus didn't behave in a way that was inconsistent with real love. Sometimes you need to hear the unvarnished truth. Sometimes you need to hear that you're under the influence of Satan himself. Jesus had some tough words for the Pharisees. Read Matthew 23, 13 through 33. He begins to share with them what he, he describes as woes, the woe to you statements. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. You're a bunch of hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and the dish, meaning he's using cup and dish as metaphors to describe their, their, their image management. You clean the outside of yourselves, but inside you're full of lawlessness and hypocrisy. First clean the inside, then the outside will become clean. And he says you travel over land and sea to make one disciple, and you make that person a son of hell. He had some tough words for the Pharisees. Was he acting in a way that was inconsistent with love? No, he wasn't. He couldn't. He can't deny himself. Sometimes love looks like rebuke. Jesus even said to his followers, if your spiritual sibling sins, Luke 17, 3, your spiritual sibling sins, go and tell him his fault. Rebuke that person, he actually says. Paul rebuked Peter in the front of a whole bunch of other people. We read about this in Galatians chapter 2. Peter did something that was very hypocritical and damaging to the congregation where they both were, and Paul called him out in a public way. If you're familiar with Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he was executed by the Nazis for his participation in a plot to a ensure the assassination of Hitler. As a follower of Jesus, he participated in that. You might say, how could a follower of Jesus do that? Are you sure he's a follower of Jesus? Well, if you read his writings, I think you'll be convinced too. He really was a follower of Jesus. I, I, I can't say I can come up with any kind of explanation for his participation. Maybe it was good, maybe it wasn't, I don't know. But this guy seems to really have gotten the heart of God and he made this statement. He said, nothing can be more cruel than the leniency which abandons others to their sin. Nothing can be more compassionate than the severe reprimand which calls another Christian in one's community back from the path of sin. See, sometimes love looks like rebuke. Sometimes love looks like community. Do you know that Jesus lived in community? He wasn't isolated from others. He was raised in a traditional Jewish family. He participated in Sabbath worship. He and his family attended synagogue annually. They went to the temple. He, he learned the law of Moses. He probably could, could recite the law of Moses without any difficulty at all. Lot, there actually were rabbis during the day of Jesus. Paul might have been one of them who could recite the whole law of Moses by memory. Jesus experienced community. Jesus was in fellowship, and he expects the same of us. You can say, well, how, how do I know that? How do I, I know that, that it's, it's not just enough for me to read my Bible and isolate myself and seek the Lord in prayer. 
Well, one of the ways you can understand that and appreciate that is not only looking at the example of Jesus, but looking at all the one another statements in the New Testament. It's a whole bunch of them. Like love one another and forgive one another and encourage one another and pray for one another and confess your sins to one another. You can't do those one another's by yourself. Some of you are discovering sobriety from addiction, an addiction to chemicals. There's lots of kinds of addictions. One of the things people who struggle with addictions learn is you can't beat those addictions by yourself. Even if you're a Christian, you need community. God uses community to help you to find freedom. There's an old saying in the recovery community, you're as sick as your secrets. You know, the, the Bible tells us, I just quoted it, he wants us to confess our stuff to each other, not just to him. Something happens when you, you share the, the problem that you have that besets you, by, the Bible calls it a besetting sin, the one that takes you down over and over again in spite of your, your greatest efforts. It takes you down. And something happens when you share it with another person. Something happens when you get the humility to say, or maybe it's not even humility, maybe it's desperation. You're so sick of being embarrassed by this thing and defeated by this thing, you finally tell somebody. It shames you, it owns you because you have not shared it with another person. Maybe it's a sexual attraction to kids. Every, you know what? Wendy and I were singing a song on the way to church today. Jesus breaks every fetter. Now, some of you who are in recovery, you know what your fetter is. You have an advantage. I want to tell you, everybody's got a fetter. Everybody here has a fetter. Something has, has hold on you or is a particular difficulty for you. Your fetter might not be a, an addiction to a chemical. It could be an addiction to porn. It could be a, an addiction to resentment. It could be an addiction to self-righteousness. It could be an addiction to pride. It could be an addiction to, to, to managing your image. It could be an addiction to fear. Everybody's got something they struggle with, 100% of people, because why? Because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And sin isn't just bad stuff we do, it's a condition we have, like a virus. Romans chapter five says that. The whole world's been infected. Now some people's sin virus shows up as an addiction to a chemical or addiction to porn or something else, but everybody's struggling with something. Everybody. And what a beautiful thing when you're able to share with another human being and say, I can share this with God, but I need to share it with another human being because God's word has said, confess your faults to one another and pray for one another that you might be saved, literally saved and healed, delivered and set free. Wow, yeah man, this is, this is worth shouting about. This is good, this is the gospel. Community, loving people looks like, sometimes looks like rebuke. And sometimes it looks like, yeah, you're not, you're not doing what you need to be doing. Sometimes it looks like community, but we're here with you, we're here for you. Guys, hopefully Life Church will become a place, and I think in some ways we are, but we, do, would you agree we have room for improvement? That's the biggest room in the world, everybody. Room for improvement, seriously. 
We got room for improvement. You think we could love people better? I think so. What if we said to everybody that's struggling, everybody that wants hope, that wants healing, that wants transformation, what if we said, we are for you, we are with you, and we are for you. Wow, wow. What if we just considered, too, some of the things that happened in the New Testament church in the book of Acts in terms of what happened when people came under the influence of the Spirit, what did the Spirit do? He drew people into community. That's what he does. He never intends for you to stay isolated and by yourself. Think about this. When people experienced Jesus as their Savior and then the life of the Spirit, it's, it says this about them. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and the breaking of bread and literally, it says, and the prayers, everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles, and those who had believed were together and had all things in common, and they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need, and day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity heart, praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. What if, what if, we really plunged into community. You know what we have here on the weekends? This is really nice. I mean, I tell you, I, I love it when we get together, we see each other, there's some kind of warmth. Ahmed testified what he felt. He felt an internal hug. A lot of us are feeling that. But we need, we need more than that. We can't connect in depth here in this kind of setting. We need a more private setting with fewer people some people we can tell our story to, some people we can trust to not repeat our story, some people who when we tell them our story, we're not gonna get judged, we're not gonna get shamed. We're gonna hear, I am with you and I'm for you. Wow, that's church, that's community. See, they met both in the temple and house to house. It's good for us to meet in the temple, for us to meet in a big gathering like this. But it's also really important to meet in smaller groups where we can have really personal conversations and we can share our stuff. It keeps us humble too. And humility is a beautiful thing. And I wanna read you some more from the book of Acts. Acts chapter four, this same thing kept, kept happening. The congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul. This is what happens when the Holy Spirit is on the move. You become of one heart and one soul. You, you experience unity. Not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own, but all things were common property to them. And with great power, the apostles were given testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and abundant grace was upon them all. And there was not a needy person among them, for all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales and lay them at the apostles' feet, and they'd be distributed to each as any had need. Wow, not a needy one among them. Powerful stuff. Then there's an amazing text about community in Hebrews chapter 10. Whoever wrote that book, we don't know the author of that one. The person said, don't, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves as the habit of some people is, but all the more as you see the day approaching, referring to the day of Christ's return, gather together, meet, meet with one another, and stimulate one another to love and good works. That's, imp that's important, that's powerful. 
We need community. Love looks like community. Love looks like serving each other. Read John 13. You see that Jesus, the Lord, the Savior, the teacher, the, the master, served all of his apostles by washing their feet. That, that was a practice in first century Middle East that was relegated to household servants. They did that. Jesus is Lord over all. He's the creator of the universe, and he's doing that for his disciples. And the disciples were very uncomfortable, especially Peter. He said, Lord, I don't want you doing this. And the Lord said, if you don't let me do this, you don't have any part in me. And he says, then, Lord, wash all of me. He said, you don't need all of you washed. But follow my example. Serve. Consider this statement. His disciples wanted to be really great and important in the kingdom. And Jesus didn't fault them for wanting to be great and important. But he said, if that's what you want, you need to know the way to get there is not by being a power over person, but by being a power under person. The way to get there is to serve. You want to be great in my kingdom? Serve. Serve. And then Paul says this. I love this passage in Philippians. What if it became our prayer? Philippians chapter 2, beginning with verse 3. Excuse me. Paul says to, to us, really, the Holy Spirit speaking through Paul to us, he says, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important. More important than yourself. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God, a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. He took on the form of a bondservant. He became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. What does agaping one another look like? Looks like all that stuff. It's supernatural. And it's humanly impossible. We can't, we can't manufacture that. Would you agree with that? We're not going to get there by trying harder. But the Bible says the things that are impossible for people to do are possible with God. Right? Luke chapter 18. And then more good news in Philippians 2. God is at work in you to will and to work for his good pleasure. Remember this. This, this is a key. If you want to learn to love people the way you are loved by God, there's only one way. It's, it's explained to us in 1 John 4.19. We love each other because we've first been loved. And I want to suggest something to you. You test this. You weigh this. I'm suggesting to you, you will never be successful at loving a person the way God actually requires us to love others, whether it's your spouse or your kids or, or, or a friend or anybody, unless you learn to, to receive the love of God ongoingly and experientially. And you want to know something? Most of us in the church are so addicted to the merit system, we know nothing about the mercy system. And, and I want to tell you something. It may take a Christian lifetime to get free from the merit system. The idea that, that God only likes me if I remember to read my Bible or if I'm spending enough time in prayer or if I tithe. 
or whatever. We need to rediscover the gospel. Guys, I need to rediscover the gospel every day. Do you know, I tell you what, I'm really attracted to performance-based living. I lived that way as a, as a young man, as an athlete in high school and college. I was driven, driven, driven to, to work out in season, out of season. I was ready to get on the mat any day of the week, any time of the year. And I dug it. I totally got into it. I was lifting weights and running, conditioning, practicing all kinds of techniques, competing year-round. Totally loved it. I received a lot of affirmation for it. Being such a dedicated athlete. And I became a follower of Jesus. And I fell in love with, with God and his word. Oh, thank you, honey. Thank you. That's a subtle hint. Mm. Thank you. I fell in love with God. I dove into the word. I learned that prayer could be fun. It was time with God. I was experiencing God. I was getting that hug from Jesus. Fell in love with community. But it didn't take long before I started forgetting that my worth in God's sight wasn't based on how much of the scripture I read or how much time I spent with him in prayer or anything else. It wasn't based on anything I did at all. It was based on God and who God is and that his essence is agape and he just, he can't help but love me because he's love because he can't act in a way that's inconsistent with who he is. Does this make sense, everybody? And, and we've got to rediscover this. This is the gospel. The gospel isn't about trying harder. It is about receiving more. God doesn't want you to have a theology of love without the experience of it. He wants you to have a theology of it so that you have an experience of it. So this is my, my hope for you, my invitation for you, is that throughout this week, you'll say, Lord, show me how to experience your supernatural love, your unconditional love, your inexhaustible love, your impartial love, your non-coercive love, your non-intrusive love, your love that can be resisted. Help me to experience this. And it will feel, at times, it will feel like, oh, this is really self-absorbed. What? Am I really supposed to be about this? You'll never be able to love anybody, including God, if you don't learn to accept and experience his love all the time. So please, ask him to help you when you meet with him in private. Well, I don't care. Maybe, maybe it's just while you're in your car, you're driving along, you meet with him in private. Talk to him about this. Say, Lord, I need a baptism of your love. Guys, we can talk all we want. Some of us, some of we who are the old timers, we know what it means to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. We want to be baptized in the Spirit. I do. Again, again, and again, afresh. I want it. I want a baptism of love, though. I want a baptism of love. That's not either or. I want a baptism of power and I want a baptism of love. And you can have both. Let's get both. What will make Life Church a rocking church is if we excel at the things that God says really matter to Him. And because His essence is love, that ought to matter to us more than anything. By this will all people know that you are my disciples, that you love one another. Love. Let me tell you, the Spirit is the Spirit of love. It's through the Holy Spirit, the love of God is poured out in our hearts. And as we, as we learn to love, I think His power is going to be more fully manifested among us. 
power to change people's lives. God has shown us this isn't going to happen. It's by trying hard to make it happen. It's going to happen when we say, Lord, I'm helpless. I'm really helpless to experience your love unless you do something to help me experience it. So would you do that? There's a saying I've quoted here. I'm not the creator of this saying, not the originator, but I like it. I heard a Lutheran pastor, alive, a very much alive Lutheran pastor, say he learned to say to God, I can't, you can, please do, thank you. How about we do that right now? I want to invite the worship team up. I want to just say, Lord, I can't. You can, please do, thank you. John and James were known as sons of thunder, but Jesus transformed them into, transformed them into disciples of love. Do that for us, Lord, please, so that the hallmark among the people of life churches, look at how they love one another. If you agree with that prayer, would you say amen?